0: Under federal guidelines, they're not supposed to be doing that. Like there is a federal guideline that says you should not be using a positive drug test as the basis for removal, but they do it anyway, all the time. And it can even be a positive for marijuana. Like it's not even necessarily one of the more stigmatized substances. If they want to take your child for whatever reason, they will use whatever they can to do it. People who have addiction disorders, those don't just get cured because you're pregnant. I mean, if they did, then we would just like prescribe pregnancy to everyone who could get pregnant and had an addiction disorder right like that would just be that was the cure you know there you go but it's not you're listening to narcotica a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs
1: and the people who use them
2: Is there any class of people who receive more stigma, who get more shit and abuse for using drugs, than mothers? Probably not. For whatever reason, society really looks down upon mothers who use drugs. And too often, child protective services use evidence of drug use, even prescribed drugs like methadone or buprenorphine, as a pretense for seizing children from parents, even when there are no signs of abuse or neglect. At Narcotica, we believe in safe drug use no matter who it is. On this episode, we're going to be talking about how stigma against drug use is contributing to an overloaded foster care system, how so-called fetal assault laws are used to control women and pregnant people, and the various ways the war on drugs can be used to dehumanize and criminalize parents. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Before we get started, we want to take a quick moment to take a message from our sponsors. No one. Yes, Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we want to keep it that way. So thanks for the folks who support us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash narcotica to become a member and join others who make this show possible. Also, our email is back up. For several months, we were locked out of our own email. I don't want to get into why. All I want to say is that if you want to talk to us, hit us up at tips at narcocast.com or, you know, just message us on Twitter or Facebook. We'll try to get to it as soon as possible. Thanks for listening. Our guest today is Elizabeth Brico, a freelance journalist and author from the Pacific Northwest. Her work has appeared in Politico, Columbia Journalism Review, Vice, Undark, and many others. She's also the mother of two little girls, which we'll hear more about later. Elizabeth, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited.
2: (laughs) Also with us on the show is Narcotica co-host Zachary Siegel, beaming from Chicago. How's it going there?
3: Doing okay, Elizabeth, really nice to have you on. I'm a big fan of reading your writing.
0: Thank you, I'm a big fan too, so I'm excited, thank you.
3: Also
2: joining us is Narcotica co-host Christopher Meraf from Philly, say hi, Chris.
1: Hey, what's up guys, Troy, Elizabeth, Zach, uh, how, how's it going?
2: Yeah, I guess, Elizabeth, let's start with your story for people that haven't heard about it before. I guess, I guess to start at the beginning.
0: My family, my husband and my two little girls were in Seattle and moved from Seattle to South Florida where his family was living after he had a kind of a mental health crisis to try to help him recuperate. And that that is really where this started, about a month after we moved. He had a recurrence of his symptoms, and it caused a lot of stress in the family, and his parents reacted in a way that they had done in the past, which was to take it out on me for whatever reason, and ended up calling in. I'm honestly not clear if they called 911 or called the child abuse hotline in Florida, but whatever happened, it ended up triggering an investigation from the Broward County Child Protective Office, and I wasn't there at the time. I was in Miami for a couple of days. The initial claim was abandonment, which didn't hold up because going to Miami for two and a half days is not abandonment, but they still filed to remove my daughters based on that, and... Based on the fact that I had been on methadone in the past in Florida when we had lived there previously. So they had a record of that. My daughter, my elder daughter, had been born while I was prescribed methadone and she'd had a little bit of NAS and that had triggered its own investigation, which was unsubstantiated but still in the record. And they used that as the basis for sheltering my children and the magistrate accepted that basis and from that point forward my daughters have been out of my care that was in April of 2018 and there was just a series of absurd and kind of unbelievable events that led to now the termination of my parental rights and my daughters being adopted to my in-laws.
3: Yeah like one thing I want to just sort of pause on and talk about for a second, like your story is so remarkably scary, because I think it can really happen to anyone if they get like investigated and and looked at closely. And we can talk more about that. But that like, there is a record of your methadone treatment, and it can be weaponized and used against you when that is like medical care, like that is highly sensitive and protective Information, but it like to me that signals someone who is getting better, someone who is like, you know, doing quote unquote recovery. Or I don't know if you identify with it that way, but like it just seems so scary and weird and backward and insane that someone being on methadone would be held against you. Isn't that like a positive thing to be on methadone?
0: For sure. I definitely agree with you. And I actually even Filed an American with Disabilities Act complaint because it's technically against, it's a violation of the ADA to discriminate against someone on the basis of being on methadone or any uh, medication for addiction. But the charges themselves weren't she was on methadone, you know, but that was what they brought up when they were like asking when the magistrate was asking the investigator kind of her reason for filing the petition, she was saying, well, there were these allegations that she was using drugs, and I didn't really have any evidence that that was true, but I saw that she had this history of using methadone. So The investigator basically justified her decision to remove my children without having actual evidence that I was currently using drugs, which I'll say shouldn't even have been a basis for removing them anyway, but in her mind it was and she, she used the fact that I had been on methadone and therefore had an opioid use disorder diagnosis on record as her reason and the magistrate agreed with that reasoning. She said that she could see no signs of current use, no evidence that, that there was any current use but because of my history she felt it warranted to, to shelter my children. And which Sheltering basically means that I, I have the right to a trial, like it's a temporary removal.
3: So one one thing that I've heard a lot about and I tried to look into a couple of years ago and it was really complicated and hard to understand. But something that is in the news from time to time is that the foster care system is like overloaded and overstretched because of the opioid crisis. Like that's that's one narrative that has come out with like more foster care needed and more parents with substance use disorders who are losing their children. And, you know, I didn't think too much about it at the time, like, well, it's hard to, you know, determine cause and effect here. But I'm thinking now that, like, the that sort of system that, like, investigates families and temporarily removes children on the basis of, of, of drug use, or in your case, like, some vague evidence that you once used drugs because you were on methadone. Like maybe the system is overstretched because parents are subject to lose their kids with like the flimsiest and thinnest of evidence. Like, is, is this something you've um, looked into much more closely than I?
0: Yes, I've definitely looked into it, especially after my case opened, I really wanted to understand how it could happen because it just felt so absurd and impossible At the time I didn't know much about the foster system and you're right. I think that there, I mean, I'm not sure about the exact numbers in terms of the correlation between the, you know, opioid crisis or whatever you want to call it and the foster system. But I know that the foster system is definitely overloaded and that um, a lot of cases are related to parental substance use. It's really hard to track the exact numbers because that's not an actual charge and all of the data is pretty much self-reported from agencies, but people have estimated between like one to two-thirds or potentially even higher substantiated cases are related to parental substance use. And one of the things that I, I didn't know before I had to, and I don't think um, many people know, is that the, when you go to a trial or any kind of um, hearing with a, with a child services case, it's not held to a criminal standard So it's held to a civil standard. So they don't actually have to really prove anything like beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't have that standard. They just basically have to make the judge think it's (laughs) true. It's what is it? I'm forgetting what it's called now. Um, Yeah, it's like,
3: it's like a lower, it's like a lower burden of proof, right? Like if they marshal enough evidence, then that can, you know, sway a, a judge or, or a magistrate or whatever. It's not like, yeah, they, there's a jury of 12 who need to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, which is, yeah, very hard to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So so all you basically have to do is have one judge who doesn't trust you, which I had, and then your entire case kind of goes out the window. So that's one, one issue. And another is just that even in, in the beginning stages, a lot of people don't understand their rights. There aren't that many rights in the first place that parents have in terms of like actual rights that can actually be like upheld. <laughs> um, I mean, you have the right to tell an investigator to go away if they don't have a warrant, but then the investigator oftentimes will use that against you and say that you're non-compliant or combative, and then that becomes one of the pieces of evidence against you. So it's really difficult to navigate. And then, of course, there's all this stigma and misunderstanding around drug use and addiction. So people are taking children, Because of positive toxicologies or because of addiction diagnoses. And under federal, the federal guidelines, they're not supposed to be doing that. Like there is a federal guideline that says you should not be using a positive drug test as the basis for removal, but they do it anyway, all the time. And it can even be a positive for marijuana. Like it's not even necessarily one of the more stigmatized substances. If they want to take your child for whatever reason, they will use whatever they can to do it.
3: Yeah. And it seems like if a judge simply doesn't understand what methadone is or is, yeah, in this case, like just ignorant or have prejudices about addiction, then you're kind of screwed. Like I've heard, I've heard a judge say that buprenorphine is a racket and that no one should be on it and that she likes Vivitrol. And it's like, okay, like you, that's the Alchemy's talking point. Like you're a judge. Why are you? why are you thinking this way? Like, I thought like the whole idea of our justice system was like, yeah, like freedom from the passions and just like judges are like, you know, the sort of center way of just like hearing both sides. And yeah, it's such an absurd idea that, that like justice is is blind or whatever. It's yeah.
0: For sure. I mean, yeah, at the time of my case, I was actually on buprenorphine. I wasn't on methadone anymore and um i had to taper off of it because my prescription had been in seattle didn't have one in florida but i wanted to get back on it and the judge basically said she would allow it but it had to be temporary it had to be like a buprenorphine taper program i couldn't be on it long term she wouldn't give me my kids back and it was a long-term program which isn't the you know that's not how people know. i mean people do that and if they want to do that it's fine but that's not what the evidence base is for the use of buprenorphine you know so it's just like she didn't understand what that medication was, clearly, they didn't have a good understanding of methadone because they used it against me and honestly, I just think that that they didn't like me. <laughs> I think that was kind of another really big factor It's just that they didn't they didn't like me and they didn't want to give my kids back and they probably didn't like me because because I was seen to them as you know a junkie or or whatever
2: yeah, I remember. You telling this story about one of the judges saying something about you being able to sell ice to Eskimos? Can you give us a little background on that?
0: Yeah, so I took the case to trial because I really felt that it was a really unjust case, and my attorney, who was a, who was like a public defender, um, warned me. He said, "You know, they don't have a very good case against you, but you have a really conservative judge." So he warned me about that, but I still kind of latched onto the they don't have a very good case against you and wanted to like go. And they didn't. The investigator, the person who had filed for the shelter petition actually went on the stand and admitted that my daughter showed no signs of abuse or neglect. They appeared to be healthy and well bonded to me and their father. And that seemed to be like I should have won the case right there. I mean, if they're trying to charge me with some kind of abuse or neglect, and the only person who actually investigated the case says that there wasn't any, shouldn't I be walking out with my children? But at the end of the trial, The judge charged me with neglect and imminent risk of serious harm, and her reason for doing so was that she felt I used poor coping mechanisms because I had talked to someone about the possibility of buying marijuana and also because she felt that I had a great skill with language and could therefore sell ice to an Eskimo. That was her basis for taking my children.
3: You're a writer. Like, (laughs) of course you know how to use the English language and use it to your benefit like yeah to like spin that in the negative and use it against you really reminds me of like my some of my own experience in like the addiction treatment world just like if I didn't like something when I was in rehab or like protested against a claim or didn't like a recommendation or suggestion it was sort of turned around on me as being like Either like intellectualizing things too much and like not trusting the process or I was being defiant and and willful and, and, and selfish when I'm really just like voicing what I think and what I feel, which is like the whole sort of point of the process, right? Like not to bite your tongue, to like say what you're really thinking, like say what's on your mind. But then I slowly stopped doing that because I realized every time I did, it was like weaponized and like used against me. And yeah, when I see that happening, I just get so enraged. And like the stakes, I'm not like saying my experience is like yours. The stakes were much different. Like I didn't have a family on the line that I was going to lose, but that it's happening in the situation where the stakes are so high is so scary.
0: Yeah. And it's something that I heard from other people too. Um, when I was in that buprenorphine program that she allowed me to go in to the one that was like a taper one, um, there were other people there. There was one person who told me that she had been to law school and she had to hide it when she had a case because she knew what I didn't, which was that they don't like people who are intelligent. I don't know if it's women or just generally people with opioid use disorder or what it is, but she said, and other people were saying it too. They're like, yeah, you have to pretend that you're way dumber than you are if you want to get anywhere. But no one told me that, you know, uh, in time, I guess. But that's messed up. You shouldn't have to do that.
3: And I think it's just like a very potent example of of stigma against addiction too, is that like everyone who uses drugs is like a selfish, manipulative conniving like three-dimensional chess player and it's like no like that is like yeah it just really angers me to to hear that one one question i have like you are a writer and you've written a lot about your your life and your experience but you also do very solid journalism and did they read your work was there any like evidence (laughs) of like your articles brought in like like did any of that make it into the the room when you were being judged
0: yeah actually the prosecutor for the state submitted into the evidence a couple of my articles i'm i'm not sure she actually read them i think she may have just read the headlines when she submitted them she didn't end up actually bringing them up though so i don't know i mean legally the judge shouldn't have read evidence that wasn't introduced um in the trial i I obviously don't know what she did behind the scenes but because she did make references like to my writing when she said that language thing so i'm not sure she could have just googled me i mean you know so i don't know but yeah but the the prosecutor did initially submit two articles um one of which was for vice about it was like the headline which i don't i never write the headlines, but it was something like my daughter was born with a drug dependence and it was an article that was actually just about how to reduce NAS by, um, splitting methadone doses. (laughs) But, um, I guess she felt that that headline was really scandalous. And then the other one was about, was something I wrote for the fix about why I don't keep a sober date. And it was about like not wanting to like have my sobriety like for my recovery or whatever rest on like a date you know and like just holding up that date is like the most important thing but she seemed to to feel that those were really scandalous or something
2: that's kind of ridiculous and because of all of this you know you technically are no longer legally your kid's mother i think on the show we say this a lot but the law can get fucked uh, you are the mom of your children no matter what anyone else says however you wrote this piece in Filter Magazine recently that quote, termination of parental rights is termed the civil death penalty. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't like coin that term. That's, that's something that people have been saying for a while, but it's essentially, it's supposed to be irreversible. I mean, there are exceptions to that. like, you know, someone, if someone is charged with the death penalty before it's actually enacted, they could have it reversed, but it's really hard to do. And it really just, it severs your ties legally with your family. I mean, for me, I'm gra- grateful at least that they were put in, in adopted out to relatives of, my, of their father, of my husband, um, so that I can at least see them and have contact with them. For people who they're adopted to strangers or family members who just simply don't want to let them have any contact, they can completely lose all contact with their children have. I, I've interviewed mothers who have no idea where their children are, haven't seen or heard from them, spoken to them in years. They don't even know their names because sometimes even the first names are changed, but often the last names. And um, it's terrible, you know. If if my daughters were to get ill or injured, I wouldn't be the person that was called about that anymore. I wouldn't have the right to to visit them. Like I would have to get permission from my mother in law. I would have to hear from her that that this had happened if you know it, it's like you said I'm legally I have no rights to them anymore and it's really terrible I mean when you are a parent that's like an integral part of who you are like it's it's a part of your identity it's a part of your heart and it, that's just been like ripped away from me on the basis of of nothing I mean they didn't even claim abuse or neglect really you know like they when they wanted to terminate my rights it was really just based on on the fact that i hadn't completed this like list of services in a fast enough timeline for them
3: yeah this just seems like a a bureaucratic nightmare but i don't want to like give it a sort of like flat power dynamic it's like the government like the state is run by individuals and it's an institution. And in this case, and I think as you've demonstrated in your work so thoroughly, these institutions operate incredibly cruelly. And I just, you know, want to, yeah, like hear like how, how this is like, A, like, like how have you coped with this? Like what, what have you done to like stay sane during all this and and like not despair and if you are despairing and have despaired obviously that's probably a very normal reaction but but also be how this has sort of changed your perception of of the government of of the state of of the system like what do you think before this happened to you and like what do you think about it now
0: sure Sure. I mean, I, I wasn't like a, a big fan of the government before this happened, but <laughs> you know, but I'm definitely like much more critical and like with a much more like informed understanding of why I'm not a fan of the government. And it, it's so I, I didn't really understand. I th- And I think it's true for, for the average person, how messed up the foster system was. I think most people are like, feel bad for foster kids and like know that there's some kind of problems, but they don't really like fully understand. And I hear this again and again, over and over and over again from people in the abolition like spheres, which I'm a part of now that they didn't know until they had to either because of their own case or just someone they were close to. Um, Again and again, I hear that child sir. I mean, they're called child protective services, right? I mean, that sounds really great. Like we all want to protect children. They have a great marketing. Like they, People think that that they're flawed, but they're ultimately they have the best interests of children at heart, and they're not. That's not the case. It's it's really, I mean, it's a it's a racket, and it's financially based. I've written about this for Talk Poverty. Government spends almost ten times more funneling money towards the foster foster placements and adoption than they do on reunification services. So, I mean, when you look at that just alone, that power imbalance alone, you can obviously discern from that that there's going to be a lot of problems you know a lot of incentives to do the wrong thing and to harm families and to keep them apart and then to justify it and one of one thing that I found out um while I was writing that article that I just thought was so horrific is that TANF the temporary assistance for needy families it's supposed to be kind of like our what we our version of like welfare benefits now part of it is actually used for the foster system it's given to foster parents instead of you know, families of origin who need it, and when you consider the fact that the, almost 100% of the families who are involved with child services are poor, that's really scandalous. I I I can't believe that people aren't talking about that more. I think that's horrific. But but anyway, um, to answer the other question you had in terms of like the issue of like despair, I mean, it's it's a really horrible situation, and it is. I have despaired over it, and am despairing over it. I think the the one thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I do still get to see them I if I if I couldn't see them I don't even know if I'd be alive right now to be completely honest and I mean and that's fairly common people commit suicide after they have their um rights terminated all the time and if if my children were with people who I couldn't see them I probably would have done that to you know like that's the honest truth and and um I mean, the fact that I'm alive right now, like I'm very lucky. I definitely was using after my rights were terminated, and it's all fentanyl down here, so it was very unsafe. And there's another woman, Dylan Stanley, who's, who was awesome in the harm reduction community. She also had a very similar case to mine at around the same time. And she also lost her rights to her child, her daughter, and recently overdosed fatally about maybe a week and a half ago or so.
3: Oh my god.
0: Yeah. And it's horrible. It's really sad. She was amazing. She was so amazing. And I could have easily been her if, if I were still using right now, I could have easily, the same thing could have happened to me. And and if I wasn't able to see my daughters, I would be, I'm sure I would be still using right now.
3: Yeah. I, I guess I, I wonder like how has the harm reduction movement and, and platform been there for you and maybe ask also how it hasn't like when we think of harm reduction as a collective like distributing syringes is a big thing distributing naloxone you know operating underground supervised injection like these are sort of the big things associated with with harm reduction and i actually don't hear so much about parental rights in the context of you know the, the system going after uh, parents and families when when there's drug use present. And have you um, gotten support from, from harm reduction groups? And and do you think there needs to be a, a much more vocal aspect of harm reduction about this issue?
0: I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about the harm reduction movement. I think it's really powerful and important and we need more of it i think that there's definitely not much of harm reduction in the county i'm in which is partially due to the laws which are starting to change in florida i know that they're trying to open up like syringe distribution and stuff there's still none in my county but hopefully there will be you know so so that's one thing i mean that's not that's not like the fault of the community it's kind of more the fault of like the state but in terms of like actual like access to like in-person in physical harm reduction services, I really haven't had any in Florida, but but online, people have been like really kind and understanding for the most part. But I I will say that the support that I've received the most has been from the child welfare abolitionist community. That that's which there are a lot of people who intersect in the harm reduction community and the abolitionist community, but that's really where those are the people who've really been like kind of my rock and like been holding me together. Um, you know, movement for family power was they actually like tangibly help you know they're not like um licensed to um you know practice law in the state of florida but they were able to help in very tangible ways like by um hiring an expert to testify on my behalf um or to write testimony on my behalf and um and things like that and then also just being like there for me and like sending work my way and things like that and then also the national council for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls gave me a paid fellowship, which was really, really helpful and helped me just like literally like live and like have a home and stuff. And then they also had uh, members who came and like sat in the courtroom with me during some of my hearings, which was really great to have that support. So um, those were, those are the folks who were like the most there for me and continue to be. But, but the harm reduction community I, I love as well. And there are, people in there who who are doing um, work and talking about child welfare but i do think that there should be more discussion of it because it really is so it intersects so much and it's so deeply harmful to a lot of people who use drugs so i think that that is a conversation that needs to come up more but it is one that's happening so that's good
2: uh so elizabeth like often uh i hear all this criticism about how cps is this horrible organization that really is inefficient and doesn't really achieve its intended goals of protecting kids. And that's definitely been my experience growing up, But I, which I won't really get into. But let's talk about alternatives to CPS. Like, you know, we're, there's this conversation nationally right now about whether or not we should be defunding the police, etc. What should CPS be reformed? Or should it be eradicated? That kind of thing.
0: I definitely think that it should be eradicated. I'm total, like, full-on abolitionist. Personally, I know that that's probably not going to happen tomorrow, but it's (laughs) what I think is best, and a lot of people as well. But, you know, it's complex because the reality is that even though the majority of kids who are taken or investigated are not really in positions of harm or, or such severe harm that they need to be removed, there are a small percent of cases in which there are children who are being seriously harmed. And that does need to be addressed. However, the system, as we see in those highly publicized cases, like, you know, the horrific case like Gabriel Fernandez that was had the, the Netflix docu-series. Uh,
2: explain that. What, what, what's that story there for people who haven't heard it?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's horrible. It, it was a little boy who had a lot of calls um, to the hotline. Um, and the investigators came by, but they never really did much of anything. And it turned out that he was being really seriously abused, physically abused by his family, like in really, really horrific ways. And he ultimately was killed. And that's terrible. Really. I mean, that's, that should never happen. It's heartbreaking. It's also extremely rare. And as we see in his his case, the, the system didn't help him, (laughs) So, I mean, people for some reason use those kinds of cases to say, well, they need to remove more kids, but that doesn't make sense because that's what they're already doing and it didn't help him. So going harder in the direction that didn't work, isn't the way to go, you know? And, and I don't know that I necessarily have the answer in terms of cases of, of that magnitude of, of real serious abuse. But I do know that 75% of cases that are substantiated are for neglect and neglect most often just means that the parent doesn't have enough money to cover something like housing or childcare or food or, or whatever. That's typically what, ne- what a neglect charge is. It's just that the parent doesn't have money. So, okay, we spend 10 times more on foster care and adoption than on reunification. Let's funnel all that money or the majority of it to those 75% of cases. And suddenly we have a very much, 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 much lighter load. And then even within the last 25%, those cases, there's a small fraction that's just this like vague other category. So even within that, there's not even, they're not even all physical and sexual abuse cases. And then within that, like we already know that physical abuse cases aren't always physical abuse cases. You know, sometimes, often they misdiagnose bone fractures or bumps and bruises, just regular childhood things or uh, medical disorders as abuse when they're not. So, I mean, the actual percentage of cases in which a child is being genuinely harmed in a significant way are so tiny that we do need to address it because no child should have to go through that. But We definitely shouldn't be focusing this billion dollar industry to address those very small cases and then harming all these other families. It's just, it's it's absurd. Yeah, it's,
3: it's amazing how like much this your analysis runs parallel of like the justice system as a whole right like we invest so much money in in prosecutors and cops and prisons and jails which is like you know the the sort of downstream like that's for people who have already like quote unquote or allegedly committed the crime and now we're dealing with them as opposed to preventing stuff from happening further upstream when people actually need help and are like you said probably just deprived of resources like i think so much of the the cases you're you're referencing are about deprivation like economically and and resource-wise like if parents don't have money for food well then their kid will go hungry and the system will read that as like the parent being neglectful and like not feeding or taking care of their kids when it's like, clearly that parent is probably trying to do whatever they can to, to stay afloat, but, but they can't.
0: Right. And the, and the parallels with the criminal justice system are, are deeper than that. I mean, Joyce McMillan talks a lot about the foster care to prison pipeline and it's very real. The children who go through the foster system, are at a much much higher likelihood to end up incarcerated, and you can you can look her up, Joyce McMillan. She talks about it much more eloquently, and has a lot more of the data. But basically, I mean, the way that children are treated when in the foster system is very similar to being incarcerated. I mean, they, they they don't have freedom of movement. They have all their belongings just like in a plastic garbage bag. Often, you know, they don't know where they're going to be. Shuffled around and then they're institutionalized and they have all this anger about that and they don't, and you know, maybe they don't have healthy attachments because they've been ripped away from their families. That's the lifestyle that they kind of understand and, and it shows in the numbers and that's one thing that she says really often, you know, the foster system isn't working. I mean, we say we're, we're trying to protect children, but why are all these children ending up in prison and jail after they go through the foster system? How is that protecting them?
1: Here in Pennsylvania, they passed an act where, like, there there used to be just one way of referring somebody to Child Protective Services or DHS, and that was an investigation, a full investigation. And uh since, really, like, this kind of kicked in while we were, like, in the hospital ourselves, they've made a two-tier system. So, if you just show up with marijuana in your system, if you're if your child is suffering neonatal abstinence syndrome from a legal prescription, or believe it or not, fetal alcohol syndrome, you're put into like a lower tier where it's like, it's like, just, they just kind of check on you and give you access to resources. So the investigations are limited to cases where there's illicit drug use and that kind of thing. And I should say, I don't think that illicit drug use in and of itself should ever be grounds for an investigation but that that's one of the reforms they've done here i think to like level the playing field and on even in the second tier marijuana has been like expunged from marijuana use is no longer considered grounds for an investigation in the state of pennsylvania i should say
0: right yeah it's definitely it varies by state which is another thing that's really like problematic to me i mean like especially like having come from Seattle, Washington where it's obviously a much more liberal state than Florida. Um I think my case would have just been never have even gone anywhere in in Washington. I'm not saying that there aren't problematic cases in Seattle especially for people of color, but I am saying that I think my case would have been handled a little bit differently. But when I do know also that um Pennsylvania is doing some kind of interesting things and I say so I don't mean interesting necessarily in a positive way, but not necessarily in a negative way. I don't know, um, but particularly in Pittsburgh, um, they're doing some stuff with uh, predictive analytics. Um, they've been doing that for a few years, and they started a system I think this year, maybe next year, it's starting that sounds kind of similar to that. Because um, I don't, you're not in Pittsburgh, right?
1: Uh, I'm the, I would be, no, I'm in Philadelphia. Okay,
0: up. yeah, because this is it's, but it's kind of similar with the tiers. They're using like um, data analytics to like try to place families into the tiers and there's some issues with that.
1: And they've rolled it out like at different times in different counties and so like there's mm-hmm. been some road bumps around that where like one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. DHS thinks one thing, the doctors and social workers think another thing. So but um there's also a component to this that has to do with like how hard you fight. You know, like I, I know a, I know a source of mine was doing state time when his when his baby's mom like relinquished custody of her child legally to to her mother, who um, was a you know a head like a, a big nurse at Temple. Like she had some social capital, and he fought tooth and nail and um, and from prison won custody. So when he came out, and it was based on a site visit, they really want to see where the baby is going to be living. I think oftentimes, and if you have the right equipment, that kind of stuff, you know. But I was asked, you know, about. Twenty-year-old like criminal histories, you know, that should never have been. You know, they they put you through the ringer when you have a kid and you have anything in your system. And in my my girlfriend's case, it was marijuana and the Adderall she's prescribed. So, um, that that enough. That in in and of itself is enough for them to like talk to you, <laughs> you know, Uh-oh. which which is like which is kind of creepy enough because you're, you're like, you feel suddenly like you're on the defensive when you're having this joyous time, you know, it's, it's, um, and, and then, you know, late as, as things develop later in time, you know, there's, there's, it's too easy to file a complaint really. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, a neighbor can do it. A family member can do it. You know, like a teacher can do it based on very flimsy facts and, at least here in, in in Philadelphia, we've had some really egregious uh, cases fall through the cracks, like mm-hmm. a, a girl with cerebral palsy they found dead, like in her own feces, like like that kind of stuff. So they, the pendulum has kind of swung the other way, and they they like investigate everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I spoke with someone actually who was a former child services agent in Philadelphia who who talked about that that the the fact that they when one of those cases would happen, they would all just ramp everything up and just get terrified that they were going to be the one to miss the case. And then they were going to like lose their job or end up in the news or even in jail. And so they would just start like removing everyone, you know, she's not working in the system anymore. So she's like happy to like kind of speak out against them. But, but I think that's still going on. I mean, for sure. It's
3: so, it's so political. Like the, it's like the enforcement just reminds me so much of of policing either. Like when they ramp up or when they pull back either way. And Chris, what what you were just talking about reminds me of a really good investigation by Carrie Blackinger, who's at the Marshall Project now. She and another guy, they investigated like the way doctors basically spark or ignite or whatever uh, child abuse cases. So like what – What led their story was like parents brought their baby into, I think, the ER because of a fall, like the baby fell, like it had bumps and bruises and scratches, whatever. And the doctors were part of some like program to try to like, I guess, like be an entryway for abuse cases. And the doctors were like, weren't really trained like in spotting child abuse. Like like, that's not – that wasn't a big part of their – curriculum or, or medical school but they so this this family uh, I think a husband and wife bring their baby in with, with like bumps and scratches and then the doctors look at the baby look at the case and then uh, refer it to the system as a child abuse case and like they were just stunned like they just bring their baby in because there was a an accident and then they're like suddenly like you said Chris like on the defensive, being interrogated and like have to like fight a whole case sort of barreling toward them. So like just so just like like it, I think like it shows that like just like contact with with healthcare. It's also like you're being policed. It's just like it's it's like kind of like a this like, uh, worm or virus that is just like latches on to all these different institutions and then, um, yeah, it can really just like screw people over if they're not careful.
0: Yeah. Um, an attorney I spoke with, a parent defense attorney I spoke with in New Jersey, actually said that right now during COVID, the hospital system, at least where she is, has been the biggest referral source for child services cases because of like the school closures and everything. And it's de- you're definitely right. Like the um, hospital system is is a kind of a pol- it becomes a, a policing system for families, and it's to- and it's not all families either. Like it's disproportionate of course low-income families but then there's also like racial and ethnic disproportionality, like enormous racial and ethnic disproportionality um, particularly among low-income black families they are I mean the, I don't have the exact figures but it's really high like the amount of black families who are involved in the system compared to how many are just in the country in general is, is really high so we have to like take that into consideration as well that we have these like systems That we're oftentimes, um, I mean, it's starting to change, but oftentimes you're going to have like a white doctor judging a low income black mother because of some kind of racial bias that he might not even be aware he has. And so you might have, you know, a middle class white family come in with the same injury, a low income black family come in, both the same injuries, but only the black family gets called on. And that kind of thing happens all the time. And that's a whole, another aspect of the system that's just like, hugely problematic and needs way more discussion and and fixing
2: i wanted to kind of talk about this uh case with this mother who uh you know maybe this is even off topic i don't know like elizabeth you can tell me if you want to talk about it or not but this case in uh california this mother who gave birth to a stillborn fetus with toxic levels of methamphetamine in its system Um, she was charged with murder but most recently the California attorney general Xavier Becerra said in a court filing that this is not worthy of a murder charge and dropped the charges against this woman. Um, it's an interesting case. I mean, it's just so horrific when I first heard of it last year. Um, this poor woman, you know, just adding trauma to misery. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they dropped the charges there in California, but this is definitely not like a unique or the first time this has happened. There, there are states that have those kinds of laws on the books right now, so it's it's a huge issue. And there's been research done that those kinds of laws really just prevent pregnant people from seeking medical care, <laughs> so they don't they don't help anyone. Right. Um, it's just ridiculous. But um, but yeah, that I mean. Sometimes I think they're called like fetal homicide laws i mean it's, it's just it's just this whole like complex issue going into like reproductive justice and uh, stigma against drug users and, and and all of these issues really intersect with each other and are part of the whole kind of scope of the foster industrial complex it's really what it is and and um it, i mean it shouldn't be happening you know people who have addiction disorders those don't just get cured because you're pregnant i mean if they did then we would just like prescribe pregnancy to everyone who could get pregnant and had an addiction disorder right like that would just be if that was the cure you know there you go but it's not so you can't just like say oh you're pregnant um stop using drugs and if you don't we're going to throw you in jail that doesn't make any sense it, it, so they need, people who want to stop using drugs and are pregnant need help doing that. And if they aren't able to access that help, that shouldn't be used against them. If that help fails them, that shouldn't be used against them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's horrific. And, and I'm glad that California didn't set that precedent, but the fact is it is a precedent in this country that does exist. And that's really scary.
1: We had a case here and first let me say that, like, I've talked to our medical examiner here in Philadelphia and they've never had a fatal methamphetamine overdose. I, as far as I understand, there, you, you, I'm sure there is a toxic level, but, but it's really hard to fatally overdose on methamphetamine. It, it, it has long term consequences, but I don't know what that case was about or how it passed to the baby, maybe in an infant. But we had a case here where, uh, in Bucks County, they were charging a mother with homicide for breastfeeding her child mm-hmm. while on methamphetamine and methadone. And they claimed that that was enough to, to, um, to, you know, cause the infant's demise. And, um, and, you know, we had a little Twitter powwow of some like, you know, mathematician researcher types, like way above my, my abilities that stop around algebra, but you know, they kind of did the numbers and they were like, it's impossible. There's no way that much, like this baby was probably poisoned, you know? Um, but it didn't come through the breast milk. I mean, it's possible. She was guilty, but not that way, you know, but, um, so this whole the idea of breastfeeding has become which is is an intimate bonding experience between mother and child um uh now i sh- i should say that no doctor has recommended that my girlfriend not breastfeed because she takes Adderall and smokes weed um so that's something to think about right there it's sort of like disrupting also the bond between a mother and a child and the, and the whole you know the whole de- desire among many women now to breastfeed
0: Yeah, I actually wrote about that case um, a little bit in the context of breastfeeding and how it was contributing to stigma um, and misinformation, particularly when breastfeeding on methadone, which was something I experienced personally when my daughter, my elder daughter, was born while I was on methadone in in South Florida. They prevented me from breastfeeding while I was, while she was in the NICU, which she shouldn't have been in at all. Um, But, um, but they wouldn't let me breastfeed. They, um, I was able to pump but they wouldn't give her the breast milk. And, you know, I, ultimately I wasn't able to breastfeed her at all. Like, I tried very, very hard, but because I wasn't able to, like, actually have her on my breast during those first few days, I never really got, like, a, a, you know, a solid enough milk supply to be able to to actually breastfeed her ever. So it prevented me from being able to do that, and, and, and that I really wanted to, you know. And it would have helped her because there's a lot of research that shows that breastfeeding is really good for infants, including infants with NAS. And it helps calm them. And the amount of methadone that passes through breast milk is negligible and isn't going to impact them. But those people in that hospital seem to think that it was going to cause her to potentially overdose or have some negative interaction with the morphine they were giving her to titrate her through her NAS, which is just not true.
2: Yeah, there's so much stigma against mothers who use drugs. It's so ridiculous. I, I, I don't think there's any more stigma against... Uh, any other class of people that use drugs, you know, like, no one gives me shit for using drugs because I'm a dude. And like, I think sexism really plays a huge role in that. Uh, I've talked to uh, Lynn Paltrow, uh, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women before. And I think she explained it as um, women are kind of seen as having further to fall with their drug use. Uh, and, and then that might be It's just like a whole system of sexism that's like treating mothers worse because they're supposed to be a certain type of person or something. Right. And how how do we fight that? How do we how do we say this is fucking stupid? Because as soon as you start talking about moms using drugs, like you will trigger some emotions that's really hard to, you know, navigate.
1: You can start by telling people that that marijuana does not pass into the baby. I don't know a heavier smoker than my girlfriend and there was no THC in the baby system at all. Like that. And that's been proven. It's been reported on. It's been like, it's in the documentation and I can tell you now with certainty. So like marijuana should never, ever be considered like in any way, shape or form harmful to a child. But I think that's probably why. No, they didn't. Nobody asked me what, my drug use was about, you know, like, cause I'm the father, like, and I'm not, I'm not like carrying the baby for nine months and presumably passing these substances off, you know? Um, and as far as like criminal history, like you could be a bank robber and still be a good dad. Right. So like that should never be a factor either. (laughs) It's like, um, I think motherhood has been put on a pedestal in a way that fatherhood has. Um, and, and that's, that's, um, is a beautiful thing, motherhood. So I don't want to detract from that, but but I think that that may be a, a part of it.
0: Yeah, for sure, I agree. I mean, people somehow seem to think of like mothers as being almost like supposed to be at least this kind of like holy, you know, Mary figures or whatever. You know, like um, like almost not even human anymore. Like once you become a mother, you you're supposed to set aside all of your human. Needs and desires and feelings, and just be totally sacrificial for your child like that's this like weird stereotype which is totally absurd I mean of course, any parent is going to make certain sacrifices for their child, but it not to the point of like losing their whole self I mean that's not even healthy, you know <laughs> it's like modeling really unhealthy behavior to your children, but that's this idea, and then in terms of like combating the stigma i mean I think there's a I think the media plays a big role i mean we can also certainly like disseminate information like you just said there's like facts but um also the media like the entertainment media i mean there's all, telling like our stories is one way but also just like entertainment media plays a huge role like i was thinking about this actually today and i had written about this for filter like we are starting to get these depictions in entertainment media of drug users as being more like sympathetic and like rounded people and, um, but not really mothers and particularly not low income mothers of color. Like I was thinking specifically about the movie Moonlight, but you know won the Oscar. Like it was just like, it, it got all these accolades and I'm not trying to say it's not a good movie. It is a great movie, but and, you know, we had this really sensitive depiction of the, you know, the main protagonist as this young gay black boy who grows into a man and becomes, you know, a, a drug dealer. And then we also had this really sympathetic, portrayal of the Afro-Latino drug dealer that becomes his mentor and it's really like rounded and sympathetic and you don't just view these people as drug dealers like you really care about these characters both of them but then there's his mother who's a, a black woman who uses drugs and is I, I think addicted to them and she is just depicted as just horrible just this and she's also a sex worker I think and she's just depicted as just like this constantly messed up totally neglectful often abusive really like one's dimensional character like you don't sympathize with her if if at all you sympathize with the slight reconciliation that takes place between her son and her but you don't actually really sympathize with her like you don't really see her you don't get her story and that's so common in entertainment media you know like the mother particularly if she's black or latinx or or you know some kind of non-white person and especially if she's low income, she's depicted as just like neglectful and terrible. And um, and then people start to believe that. I mean, there's this like crazy stereotype that like a lot, I think a lot of people like believe, which is that like drug addicted mothers are commonly going around like selling their children, like trading sexual favors with their children for drugs. Like that's a thing that people think mothers who use drugs do. And it's like maybe someone did that i'm I'm sure it came from some truth but like it's not common like i would never have done that and no mother i know who uses drugs none of them have ever done that or would even think of doing that like that's that's insane you know and it's just like not the common reality but it is a common narrative and we need to change that narrative
1: i think it's interesting too that as i when i described those two tiers like drinking while pregnant, like evidence of a fetal alcohol syndrome is on the lesser tier. So there's this legality situation. Like if you're breaking the law in some way, you know, that somehow because that's the worst thing for a baby. I mean, it's worse than crack, it's worse than it's worse than anything. And yet and yet that does not warrant like some in-depth investigation, you know. It's 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 on the lesser tier. And and if you want to post it on the website, I could send you a picture of the of the pamphlet they gave us that shows the different tiers, you know, but um, it's just to, you know, they just, they created a lesser tier, I think to prevent that, like just black people getting sucked into the system. They wanted a protocol that this is this, you know, this is the way it's going to happen. And, you know, regardless of what the mother and father look like. Right. But that's that's really strange, right. This legality issue. Um, Like you can't be a lawbreaker and also be a good parent.
0: (laughs) Right. No, it's ridiculous. Actually, um, my own, my own case, um, my father-in-law went on the stand at my trial and testified, um, that he was so scared because of my opioid addiction that I was going to relapse and overdose and like leave my children traumatized by that. He himself had been struggling with alcohol use disorder for for a long time. And, um, a few months after that trial ended up relapsing and, um, causing really severe brain injury and he's now like in a vegetative state. Um, but they still adopted my daughters to him in that condition. It doesn't even make sense. He's, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to like, he did some really harmful things to me, but I'm not trying to speak poorly about him in terms of like his disability, but he, he is not capable of caring for even himself, much less two children. But somehow my potential, to use an overdose on opioids was worse than the actual reality of him living with this alcohol induced severe injury. And they adopted my children to him. I mean, that, that, I mean, they also adopted them to his wife who is capable of caring for them, but it just, they also adopted them to him. You know, it's just like someone who's clearly not capable of caring for children now has custody of my children when I don't because his diagnosis was considered legal and more socially acceptable whereas mine was not and that's just that i think speaks to that stigma more than anything else and it's just like horrifying
2: yeah i really want to leave listeners with some kind of like you know positive note like i know you're dealing with this struggle and i can't really even imagine what you're going through it must be really difficult but what is keeping you going and how is your your fight going i know you had this petition that we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to know how the fight is going.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you you saying you linked the petition. Um, I, I do have a petition right now, which is asking either for just the return of my children, which I know is a tall order and probably won't happen. But it's either that or uh, reopening of my case and a reinvestigation by an independent third party because I really think that someone who's maybe not as financially invested in the foster system um, might have a different perspective on on the facts of the case. Um, legally speaking, my rights were terminated and my daughters have been legally adopted to my in-laws. So in that sense, the case is closed, but I do hope to appeal it. Um, I hope to use this petition kind of as a backing for that. Um, I need legal help that I don't have the financial resources to pay for right now so that's one big huge barrier um but i still hope to do it i mean i have heard of people um appealing years later or having i mean it's hard but that doesn't mean i'm going to give up you know having terminations overturned um,
1: no elizabeth did you did you share that that you actually did sign over the documents so like you're you're fighting on ineffective counsel at this point because you, you signed the papers they weren't actually so your parental rights weren't actually terminated; you voluntarily terminated them, which makes it even trickier. If you haven't spoken to that, what you told me about that 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 day that that happened and you were sent home, and how this protocol just like wasn't really followed the way it was supposed to be, I think it's an interesting angle to this.
0: Yeah, no, I haven't. Ta- I can talk about that. So, yeah, my rights were terminated, but it was considered a voluntary termination, legally speaking, because I signed the papers. But I don't consider that valid. I didn't, I mean, I, obviously, I, didn't, I don't think anyone really wants to sign those papers, but I really didn't. I really wanted to fight it. I had a movement for family power, who I mentioned earlier, was willing to finance an expert to come in and testify on my behalf. I had this new attorney, My the attorney who'd been on my case for the majority of it had some kind of emergency and had to leave the county. So I'd been assigned this new attorney who made it very clear that she didn't feel I had a case, which I don't think is true, just looking at the facts. But she didn't. She made it clear she didn't really want to fight my case. And she was really, like, kind of dismissive of this whole expert thing. Like, she was like, well, we could do that, uh, but I don't think it's going to work. And then she couldn't, wouldn't even, like, give me dates for him to come. Like, she was like, I can't even really tell you when the trial would be if we did it because they can assign – they can change it at the last minute. And I was like, well, he's not in Florida, so I need to know when he should come. But anyway, then we went to this required mediation. And um, when we left that, I, you know – I was like, she, she was really pressuring me to sign the papers. And I was like, you know, maybe I'll think about it. And she was like, okay, if you're going to think about it, then I'm going to stop working on your defense. And, you know, if you change your mind, I never even said I'd made up my mind. She's like, if you change your mind, it's just going to be a whole lot more work for me. So in, in, right then and there, she was like really like kind of pressuring me and making, guilting me into, into committing to this thing that she wanted me to. And she ultimately, she ended up convincing me to go to her office then and there to sign these papers with notary. I get to the office and she tries to just like kind of get me into a room to do it and then her like superior comes by and he's like what are you doing you there's a protocol you have to run this by me or one of the other superiors first you can't just have her sign these papers I have to make sure she doesn't feel pressured so he sits me down with her in the room and starts asking me these questions and ultimately he decides that I shouldn't sign them he doesn't feel comfortable with me signing the papers that day I can come back and do it if I want to, but he wants me to go home because, and think about it because he doesn't feel that I'm not being pressured, that I really want to sign them. So I'm not allowed to sign those papers that day. And I go home and, you know, it's kind of the same situation. I don't really want to sign them, but my attorney had told me she was going to stop working on my defense. And I basically felt that if I went to trial, I was going to be going there alone with no defense and a bunch of people who just wanted to terminate my rights and a judge who had already expressed that she didn't trust me. So I went back to the office and I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but that man didn't come in the room again. He stopped by and kind of like, like said hi and then walked away. Like no one asked me those questions again. And then they had me sign the papers. And in the room, I actually said, you know, because um, normally that's supposed to be done in a courtroom with a judge, but she was having me do it in the office with a notary, which is legally allowed, but kind of not normal. I guess and um I said like just straight up I was like you know this is perjury I don't think that this is in their best interest I don't want to do this um and I used the word perjury and I was like am I going to get in trouble for committing perjury and she's like mm, 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 no like it's fine you know and so they have me sign these papers and then she says I don't have to show up in court cuz she knows that I mean I made it very clear that if a judge asked me if I would want to do this I would say no so she goes and files the papers in court without me there because she knows that it's perjury, and I'm not going to commit to it again. So, I mean, that doesn't sound like a valid signature to me. And then on my husband, he did sign in court, but my husband has been struggling with mental illness for quite a while, and he has told me, and he believes that by signing voluntarily, he can reverse it, which is not the case. And he was explicitly told it was not the case, but he wasn't mentally competent to make that decision, and they had him do it anyway. So I don't think either signature is valid.
2: Is there anything for like mothers that are listening to this program that you'd want to say to them? Anything that someone may be going through something similar to you?
0: I just honestly, I do regret signing that, even though I don't think that I would have won the trial for all the reasons that I said um, that I didn't really have a a defense attorney who was going to do any work. For my behalf, and there were a lot of people who were really against me, but I think my appeal process would have been easier if i had if I had taken it to trial even knowing I was even though I knew I would lose it. Um, one thing though that I didn't mention is that when you do take it to trial and you lose um, versus signing voluntarily. It gives the state, at least the state of Florida, and I know other states, I'm not sure of every state, but it gives the state the ability to then, if you have any future children, to simply remove them for no reason at all, just on the basis that you have an involuntary termination of parental rights. So that was another thing that really pressures people to sign voluntarily, because with a voluntary termination, they can't do that. But I still would say, you know, like, fight, because, you know, there's nothing more devastating than losing your children and losing them forever. And it's such a hard fight and also just reach out for support because if I didn't have anyone to talk to and if I didn't have anyone in my corner, if I, you know, I, I, I don't know that I could survive it. So you really, it's just like, you can't do it alone. Even if it's only online. I mean, I don't have anyone in Florida, but I at least having online support has been really helpful. If that's all that's available to you, take it. I mean, it's better if you have people in person, but especially right now with, you know, COVID and everything, a lot of people have to do things online. So, Get the support where you can. If you can get a robust defense, I know that that's something a lot of people don't have access to, but if you do, do it because it can make all the difference.
1: Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time
2: today, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. People can find you on Twitter, where?
0: Yeah, it's just Elizabeth Brico, B-R-I-C-O.
3: Cool. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time and for telling your story. Um, This has been... Really, really powerful. So I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it. All
3: right. Talk to you soon. Bye.
2: Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at NarcoCast. And like Troy mentioned, our email is back up and running. So if you have any fun or interesting things to say, say them to tips at narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by A.A. Alto, and I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And Have a very nice night.